um, since we're a relatively small group, everybody for a change gets to see the painting, which is this rather nice René Boucher um, painting of Greenberg in mid-career in the characteristic agonized look of an intellectual with his head in his hands, wondering what he's going to put down, reading the book, and what he's going to say next in the typewriter. Um, the portrait gallery, as you know, celebrates Americans who've, who've contributed to, uh, had a substantial impact on American history and life. And we've gradually over the years democratized, popularized, and I hope not dumbed down the notion of what that is. But what we've tried to do is to get away from the notion, that the old Hegelian notion of world historical individuals, which would be people in the public sphere, people who were um, generals on horseback, presidents, the, the, the pe people like that, the traditional heroes with a capital H. And we've moved into other areas, which include the relatively abstruse, or in fact very abstruse, role of the art critic. And Clement Greenberg is important both for what he did as a critic, what he did as an intellectual, his impact in the mid-20th century, uh, mid-20th century America. Um, his work is intrinsically important to the discipline of, of art history and culture. But also what he did was he was in a way a kind of a representative man that he, he, he brought together and embodied in himself many tendencies in American history and life and culture, which simultaneously were, were reflected in his own work. And the work that he did was in some way connected to his own life. So, so to that extent, he not only is important, but he's representative. Uh, born in 1909, dies in 1994, a distinguished career as a critic. And the interesting thing about him, and the reason why I wanted to talk about him tonight, is he virtually invents the role of the critic in America as critic. Previously, there had always been a certain number of people who were critics in America, but they generally did something else. The first great critic in America would have been Ralph Waldo Emerson, but he had a career as a, mini as a minister first. He was a poet, he was a writer, he was an essayist, and he commented on the, the American scene. Later people, Henry Adams, Van Wyck Brooks, um, people like that, they all did something else, and then they would write about cultural productions, whether they were painting, um, literature, poetry, and all the rest. Randall Jarrell, for example, the great, the, the great 19, 20th century poet was also a critic. So there's this combination that what you, 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 you know, there, was, there wasn't a situation where those who can't do criticize. It was, there was, there was a complete unity of practice and um, analysis. And what Greenberg really does in the post-World War II period, he establishes the critic as an entirely separate discipline. He grew up the, 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 the pampered son of, of New York immigrant merchants who were, who were very successful. Um, he went to Syracuse University, majored in English, and was something of a misfit. There's this constant theme in Greenberg's life, which I see as quintessentially American, where a longing for disorder at the same time as he wanted, as he wanted order, this push and pull back and forth between chaos and, and, and structure. And this, in his early years, growing up in the 30s, becomes a, a major, almost crippling trope for him in his life as he tries to find himself. He wanted to be a poet. It didn't work out for him. The one poem that he had published turned out to have been plagiarized from a work that had, uh, it was published in the New Masses, and it was plagiarized from an issue of the New Republic, which had come out a year before, which also, if you want to make uh, really abstruse intellectual jokes, is a nice commentary on the relationship between those two, those two magazines. But so he fails as a poet. He, he's, he, he's, having, he's writing to a good friend of his. He's writing to his lovers um, with, with all kinds of ambition that he wants to impose order on the world. He wants to have an almost 
it, it, it's a little bit frightening he, in the sense that he's a young 20-something man who wants to really make a mark on the world and the element of his ambition is, is really a little bit scary. Um, he's, I said, as he's pampered, when his mother dies, when he's in his teens, he wears her wedding ring for two years, which I think, I don't think we need to be a Freudian to begin to think that there's some sense of a connection there um, that, that really is, is, is highly dramatic and even a little bit troubling. During World War II, he gets drafted, uh, joined in the Army Air Force, and has essentially a nervous breakdown because he can't cope with large-scale, the large-scale dehumanization involved in military basic training, and the, Air, the Army Air Force gets rid of him, um, you know, in, in a kind of, in a kind of um, just sort of puts him aside. He's already started writing, though. He's beginning to realize that if he can't make it as a poet, he can probably might perhaps make it in terms of prose. And what he does, what he fixes on, in the 1930s as a misfit, as a rebel, he naturally you go one of two ways. You'd either become a fascist or you'd become a Marxist. In America, the tendency was you'd become a Marxist. Um, Marxism in that, day, in that day and age is a rather loose category, which is really one <clears throat> of affirmation rather than having read all three volumes of Capital and most of you know, the, the philosophical manuscripts. He also identified, and this is the key thing in terms of de development of his critical theory, he identifies himself as a Trotskyite. Tro being a Trotskyite in the 30s had even less salience than being a Marxist. What it basically meant was that you weren't a Stalinist. Stalin ran the Soviet Union with an iron hand, wasn't interested in culture. Trotsky supposedly, as the alternative, was interested in culture. So Greenberg, being interested in art, culture, and creativity, becomes inevitably a Trotskyite. But what he does in his reading about Marx, he begins to formulate this theory where he applies social analysis to cultural production. And this is fairly, this is, a new, this is his breakthrough early on. Every other critic in America up to that point had begun with the notion that what he, and by and large they were he's, not she's. There were one or two, Margaret Fuller and Mabel Dodge, other women critics, but it's largely a masculine discipline. And in large measure also because the characteristics of being an aggressive man, which Greenberg was, seemed salient to the role of being a critic. But what Greenberg begins to do is, earlier critics would discuss America and bring it to literature or art. They would discuss the state of America, the state of American individualism, the state of the culture, the state of the culture generally. What Greenberg begins to do as part of his analysis of cultural production through his readings of Marx is he examines cultural production itself. That what he does is he flips things over and he begins to look at the formal categories that uh, go into making up a work of art. He decides there's this vibrant cultural scene. He's living in New York, Manhattan. He's consorting with writers and artists. He's very aggressive in terms of getting himself published. He gets, he's, he's pitching ideas. And what he begins to realize is that there's an entirely new way of art, of making art that's developing in and around World War II that comes out of European abstraction, notably the giant, of course, is Picasso, but all these other people uh, and, and, and these other artists who, who are coming in the kind of European diaspora in the, in the pre-World War II era where you have um, Hans Hoffman, other refugees who are running art classes and beginning to import new ideas to America. And Greenberg marries that 
art analysis, with his own structural analysis of capitalism, to focus, as Marxists did, on cultural production in the way that Marxists would focus on mechanical production. And so, as I say, he flips things over and reverses the traditional role of the critic by focusing on what it is that an artist did. And his, his, what he does, again, in terms of reversing the way that we think about art, is he sees, in the same way that people through the course and development of capitalism, bourgeois society, are becoming more alienated from the work, their work. There's a division of labor. Things are getting faster. There's, more, there's a breakdown of the traditional organic community. Things are being split up. He sees in the development of abstraction a reflection of the development of, of capitalist process itself. So he becomes, in a way, the explicator of an art which reflects the the society in which he lives. Mondrian, for example, is a key figure here with Mondrian's, there's, there's a famous painting by Mondrian called uh, Broadway Boogie Woogie, which is, takes the grid work of Manhattan, it, and so it replicates the street grid, and then it breaks everything down into little dots and dashes of color. In other words, it's, a, it's, it's the way in which, to take Marx's great phrase about modernism, all that is solid melts into air. Well, it melts into air, but it becomes something else. And in Greenberg's terms, interested in canvas, in, in, in painting, it becomes the marks that a painter makes on the canvas. It becomes line, it becomes color, it becomes shape. And what Greenberg argues, in the same way that modern society is destroying the traditional um, community that is out there, in painting what he does is he goes from a Renaissance perspective a, I'm sorry, a, a, a view of the Renaissance as creating perspective in which there's a, there's, you, you recede into the picture that, and that the picture tells a story. You're looking at most typically, for instance, you know, saints and sinners. Um, in, you know, um, in, in, and in the Dutch 16th and 17th century, you'd be looking at the interior of houses. You'd have the weddings. You'd have genre scenes. But there would be a story that would replicate life, however defined. And what Greenberg says, or what he sees, is the way in which, which modern practice works itself out is that the picture plane begins to flatten. As capitalism, as modern society begins to develop, the painting goes from being recessive and moves out to the picture plane itself. And what happens is that social life becomes less and less important as, in the political theory, individual life became less and less important in modern society. People become ciphers, people become acted upon, people become anonymous, people become just simply subjects, I'm sorry, simply objects instead of subjects of their own destiny. And what he sees in this is, in abstraction, the gradual pull towards the immediacy that one, for instance, would see driving down a street in Manhattan where you would see the facades, you would, see, you would feel speed, you would even see speed, and abstraction conveys all that. And what you're gradually getting away from, since Greenberg is a critic of modern society, you're getting away from essentially the sentimentality that you would see in art, nice little scenes of shepherds, nice little scenes of people at home, nice little wedding scenes and all the rest of those kind of things. Or indeed, the pictures that you see in the National Portrait Gallery. It's some irony, you have to say, that Greenberg, as the great champion of abstraction, is represented in the National Portrait Gallery with a, with a fairly fluid, but nonetheless totally representational likeness. He's not represented, in other words, with an abstraction, which would have been nice. Um, so what Greenberg is essentially doing is he's positioning himself as the, as the critic of cultural breakdown. 
um, that, that he sees society falling apart, his first great essay in the 40s is Avant-Garde and Kitsch, in which Kitsch is everything else. And, and when, when Greenberg defines Kitsch, um, it's not, we now think of Kitsch as kind of fun. I mean, it'd be like, it'd be like Chuchkas from Disney and, and you know, bobbleheads and things like that. Uh, for Greenberg, Kitsch was anything that was produced by industrial society. That would include magazines like The New Yorker or, or even the magazines that he worked for, like Partisan Review um, and The New Republic. But avant-garde culture then was everything that was separated from um, from production and sale, and that would be art for art's sake. And so what happens is that you have the Marxist, the radical, the provocateur, gradually turning himself into, through the process of his own radicination and his own thinking through this problem, he turns himself into essentially a conservative critic because he's argued himself into a position where art becomes important only in contradistinction to the corruptions and to the, to the collapses of a bourgeois society which he sees being in crisis. So you have this, this paradox, which I, I think, which Greenberg was totally aware of, but what he's not aware of because he's so interested in formalism, there's, there's this other side to Greenberg um, that you know, he wants to see, succeed in the society even as he sees that society being corrupt. He is creating a whole almost propagandistic critical discourse, in particular in relationship to his, to, to his work with Jackson Pollock, in which he is advocating certain paintings, which, as he put it, is the new American painting. It's the new style. It's the way in which America breaks from France. It's the way in which America establishes itself as the capital of, of, um, of modern art, taking over the role that had previously been held by Paris. So you have this irony in Greenberg's work that he, he goes from being, and, and even as he inhabits the role of being a radical critic of the society, he, he, he detaches artistic production from that society, turns it into an avant-garde activity, which requires the specialized critic Clement Greenberg. Greenberg only wrote about art history. It's not just that he didn't take the generalist role of before of an Emerson who did many things or of a poet like Randall Jarrell who was both a poet and a critic. Greenberg specializes. So you have again this irony that Greenberg becomes the process which he describes, that he becomes more and more alienated from a wider society, more and more drawn into the picture plan that he sees him that in, the, in the same way that he sees the, the history working towards flattening things out, working towards the surface of the plane, he himself becomes more in a way one-dimensional. He becomes vehement personally. He has, he's, is, is very temperamental, very angry, very dogmatic. He champions Jackson Pollock. And Pollock, of course, is perfect for him to go back to what I said earlier about his, his early days where he's kind of chaotically flailing about. That's what you get in Pollock. You get all over painting, which is important to Greenberg. There's no division in the canvas. The canvas is the canvas. It doesn't specify a scene here, a scene here. You don't retreat into the canvas. The canvas is there. The canvas is flat. And the canvas is pure abstraction. It, and in Pollock, it's largely line, the famous dripped brush the, the, or splattered paint. Um, it, it, and it's repetitive motion so that you have this weird thing, weird oscillation in, in Jackson Pollock's work where it seems chaotic, but it isn't. If you look at the films of Jackson Pollock painting, it's almost an industrial motion where it's repetitive, the, uh, um, you know, um, 
like a tennis or a golf swing where it's grooved. I mean, it's not industrial. It can't be industrial because it's a hand doing it. But he's reducing himself to a mechanism, an automaton, which is layering in and splattering in the paint. And this is exactly the contradiction which is so fruitful to Greenberg, which is on the one hand, it's chaos. On the other hand, it's carefully managed chaos. It's carefully ordered. It's carefully regulated. It's carefully explicated. Pollock, to Greenberg's mind, requires Greenberg to explain him to the American public. And this, of course, is again where we get back to the notion of Greenberg and nationalism, is that it's the Cold War. Um, as Greenberg says, New York is going to become the capital of modern art. And somebody says, why? And he goes, well, that's where the money is. Cynical, true. And after the war, there is a big push with all the expatriates. And Greenberg, either consciously or unconsciously, and I think it was conscious, he works to establish, going again back to his childhood dream, that he wants to make a mark on America. He wants to make a mark and help create American culture. He very consciously works, because his next great essay is New American Painting. He very consciously works to establish a modern American art, abstract expressionism, as he dubbed it, as the dominant painter painting form from roughly 1943 to roughly 1955, 56. In other words, the formative years of the Cold War in which America provides a cultural response equivalent to its nuclear response and, and, its, and its military hegemony. What Greenberg does, and again, in terms of squaring the circle here, is he takes art which, by and large, Americans hate. Abstract expressionism, Jackson Pollock, Jack the Dripper, all, this, all the cliches, my six-year-old son could do that, all those kind of things. What he does is he forces Americans to take that work of art seriously. He forces them to look at it in a way which is even, which, which, and it may well be that they just have to respect it, that they may not like it, they may not be interested in it, but they have to respect it. Life magazine runs a great spread on Jackson Pollock at the height of his infamy and, or fame. Is this the greatest painter in America? And, and it shows Jackson Pollock against his, his uh, I think, autumn rhythms, He's smoking a cigarette, looking like a tough guy. And that's key. He's looking like a tough guy. And we've, there's a, there's, we, we've, in recent years, we've fallen away from the notion of what's now called soft power. And the very name soft power, of course, is in contradistinction to hard power. Soft power is flaccid, it's girly, and all the rest of it. The thing, that one, the thing that Greenberg did, who posed and was in some ways a tough guy, and Pollock, who posed and was in some ways a tough guy, is that they created the notion that, that, that art was masculine and that it could be an adjunct culturally to American military right. There was no such distinction between soft and hard. Both were hard. And what, what, what Greenberg does in this act of, I think, you know, again, the way in which he reflected a, a, a kind of larger hegemony, a larger ideology, was that he creates the notion that America had a cultural capital that, marked, that, that matched the rest of its... Um, the, of, of the arsenal for democracy, which confronted the Cold War. The irony, of course, is this, this Trotskyite, this Marxist, he worked for Encounter magazine, which we now know is fronted by the CIA. This, the, the State Department um, sent um, cultural missions to, most notably in the late 40s, to Austria with the New American Painting, where this radical painting becomes essentially an, uh, uh, nationalized into the, that it's a strength in a way that we really don't conceive of today. That you had the most avant-garde art, in a way, serving um, American public policy. Um, that 
because I think of the forces in which Greenberg himself analyzed, the way in which art has become increasingly divorced from cultural life, this, this is a very brief moment which Greenberg sort of set into train, embodied, and then helped to bring about the collapse. It, it, again, whether it's the cunning of history or the contradictions of history, as Greenberg set in place this immensely powerful formalist engine uh, where you would concentrate not on the biography of the author or, or, the, or the painter, not on a story. You would deal totally with the element of abstraction and, and, and the, the intrinsic formal qualities of the painting. That, by divorcing painting, divorcing art from life, creates a signal triumph for him and for the abstract expressionists between 1945 and 1955. But what I now want to conclude by arguing is that it does severe damage to the continuing appreciation of American art by a broader American culture. Uh, Greenberg exemplifies a certain moment in which there was an educated lay public. There was the GI Bill, all kinds of things that created a genuine a genuinely intellectual public culture. It could, a lot of the public culture could be rubbish, as it always is, but you also had a situation where the bell curve was such that, that I think for, the, for maybe the biggest time in American history, you had an educated lay public that could appreciate things like modern art, appreciate things like, like contemporary literature. Greenberg celebrates that, but in the way that he celebrates it, by turning away from the society, by turning away from stories, by turning away from a narrative, by turning away from a notion that there's something other than pure form, he makes it very difficult for the lay public that comes after, from say 55 to, I would argue, to now, uh, to appreciate modern art. And by, by, by being so determinate, by being so so influential in the modern role of the critic, started, and, and, and Greenberg has fostered a whole string, a genealogy really of critics who have, and, and art historians who have followed him, who have re retained, either in argument with Greenberg or by breaking with him, they retain his essential formalism, and I would argue that a lot of that work is simply unreadable. Um, I, I, I can read it, I can understand it, I can talk to you about it, but when I say unreadable, what it means is it does not contribute to a broader discourse about the culture. It doesn't tell us anything about America. By focusing on the abstraction, Greenberg wrote himself into a corner. And what I, what I think, the, 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 his, while his achievement is great, the achievement now needs to be broken. And I think in so many ways it has, it's been broken with the work of people like Jasper Johns or Rauschenberg, non superheated abstract expressionists. Um, but in the scholarly world, as Greenberg has himself reflected the way in which there's a segmentation, a division of labor, an alienation from the work, that world still needs to be overcome. We need to return to a holistic view, a view that will take in the totality of influences on American culture, where we will not simply reflect the alienation that we see around us. Thanks. Any other points? Well, where did Tara Wilsonberg come in? Ah, see, I, I actually didn't want to be too inside baseball on that because Greenberg beats, first of all, I just want to point out, it, the two major critics of, of, of abstract expression, it, it's, it's Rosenberg and Greenberg. You have the red mountain against the green mountain. It sounds like some sort of Thomas Mann story. But Rosenberg was Greenberg's only rival as the major uh, late 1940s critic. Uh, roughly the same world, uh, roughly the same career trajectory, New York Jewish, uh, same school. They were buddies for a while until their um, 
antithetical. I mean, there was only, it was like the you know gunfighters in the old west, and this was where I get back to the notion of a masculine ethos of I'm going to gun you down, which is another element, by the way, that I don't like about criticism: the notion that everything is no and that nothing can be yes. Rosenberg calls the abstract, instead of abstract expressionist, which is a very formal word which conveys exactly the weight that Greenberg wanted to give to the, his own analysis and to the painting. Greenberg, um, Rosenberg comes up with, the, with, he tags the paintings as its action painting. And he, in contradistinction to Greenberg's formalism, plays, places immense stress on the psychology of the artist and the, and the, and the social psychology of America in, in the early years of the atomic year, that, that, um, that the element of, of the gestural painting of Pollock or the, the work of de Kooning we have. Is that a de Kooning or a red grooms? Red grooms, okay. <laughs> yes, thanks. I'm going blind, see? Um, he moves it entirely, he takes exactly the opposite tact where Greenberg wants this huge sweep from the 15th or 16th century on Rosenberg, who's influenced by Jung, uh, Jung, wants to see this as an acting out of kind of primal archetypes in a way that, that, that you're releasing emotion, whereas Greenberg is draining all emotion out of the painting by his emphasis on sort of formal replication and, and abstraction and line and, and length. Uh, Rosenberg sees it as almost, um, uh, to, to use a, a hacky, it's almost like a cry of despair. So that, so, that, so that the splatter paintings or the drip paintings of Pollock are an indication of his own unsettled nature, his own un, unsettled relationship to um, American society or to Lee Krasner or to, or to alcohol or whatever, whatever it is. But the, th the thing is, Greenberg was a much stronger critic, both personally and intellectually, and he manages, he, he essentially, if, if you look at this as a kind of combat, he beats Rosenberg. The, the truth be told, I find Greenberg's intellectual achievement pretty amazing. Particularly, and this is the thing, again, I'll, I'll, I'll just reiterate again in sort of a semi-close. Greenberg exemplifies that in creating the role of the critic, he's completely self-fashioned. He had no training. He didn't get a PhD. He, he comes from New York. He, he bats around New York taking odd jobs and makes himself into a critic. He goes to the new, he, he, he punches away gets a foothold by dint of energy. It's a very American story. It's an immigrant story, but it's also a, a 19th century success story, you know, of rags to riches. And he does it. He fashions himself as he fashions the role of the critic. And, and again, the tragedy that I see for him is that, is that it, it's sort of like Frankenstein's monster eats itself because he writes himself into a hole that he can't... Um, you, you know, that, that, that the element of his personal authority just can't be sustained. He himself breaks. Um, it, it, he, he, he maintains his career into the 60s and 70s, but, it, but he's beginning, he is so adamant, he is so cocksure, he is so uninterested in the humanity that Rosenberg is interested in that he becomes very difficult to deal with. He also begins, and this is the cardinal sin for a critic. I mean, basically being a critic, since I am one, it, it's sort of like being a shoeshine boy. I mean, you're not, you're not, you're not producing stuff. Um, and Greenberg begins to think that, that he is the artist. And he has this weird relationship with a lot of artists from Helen Frankenthaler, who he had an affair with, or Greenberg, I'm sorry, with Pollock, most famously, um, and, and that, that really, I think, messes him up. He's not able to keep the quote, quote, critical detachment. 
Yeah, Melissa. Right. An articulate enough speaker as an artist, yes. or had a champion that was articulate that could be articulate on your behalf, then it was left. It was more about the story that right. you could spin about an object, right. and less necessarily about formal training, composition, color, right. you know, the, the 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 craft and the skill of artists. Right. And in in a sense, if you could do that. A good enough job with that, it didn't matter either right. whether you reached anyone. Right. It, it really didn't matter because you could say this was powerful, this was important, right. this was a seminal work, and, and almost outshout. Yeah, I think just to, just to, I mean, that's a continuation of the point I just made in response to yours. Is, is that Greenberg begins to see himself as the adjunct, almost as, you know, Pollock and, and Greenberg. And there's a famous portrait and a photo by Hans Namath who took all of all of the, um, the famous Pollock portraits, and it's a portrait of Namath out at the Pollock-Krasner house on Long Island. Pollock looked a little bit like Greenberg. They're, you know, they're bald, um, sort of tough guy. Pollock was from the West. Greenberg is you know, Russian immigrant son. But you know, it's like they're smoking a cigarette and they're looking like hard men. And there's very much that sense that you know, we're in this state. That, and, and for Greenberg, and this goes back again to you know, wearing the wedding ring of his mom, he always seems to be looking for a surrogate, something or other, that's going to provide meaning to his life. And Pollock is that person for at least five years, doing exactly what you're suggesting, that this is the beginning. And, and Greenberg himself, the, irony of, the continual irony of Greenberg's life is he's writing quite cogently about exactly what is happening to him. He's turning himself into an entrepreneurial, I won't say shill, but he's turning himself into an entrepreneurial marketing arm of abstract expressionism, where abstract expressionism is the brand, Robert Rauschenberg isn't the brand, Pop isn't the brand, Andy Warhol, nah. Um, but we, you know, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to push these guys. And I don't like that guy, so I'm going to give him a bad review. And that's, again, in addition to the notion that you are the artist, it's the notion as well that um, I can make or break you, which again, you know, the, the notion of, of receptivity um, and, and the ability to say yes as opposed to the ability to say no. There are too many critics who say no, uh, and, 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 and that style continues again to this day um, and, and with, with critics, whether they're for the, the two or three newspapers that still review art. Um, or for some of the learned jour journals like the New Criterion, where it's very much the gatekeeper notion. One of the jobs that, 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 that Greenberg had when he was kicking around New York before he got started was working in the customs office in Manhattan. And this provides, and it, 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 it provides a, a joke, but it nonetheless is its opposite, which is that he's, he's putting value on things that are being imported. He's the gatekeeper. He's stamping the duties. He's, he's assessing. Um, and there's this, there's this no, you know, again, there's, it's a nice little metaphor for what the role that he later took on as a critic. Um, and you're seeing the beginning of, you know, capital B, big art, capital A, business, capital B, 
you know, all the, you know, the fact that Jackson Pollock's, whichever the first one was that Robert Barr bought at MoMA for, I don't know, three, under 10, three to $8,000. You know, that painting just, Pollock just sold a painting, or Pollock didn't, um, you know, for over $100 million. I mean, and that's not just the cost of living. That's because there's a huge bubble aspect. Again, the quintessence of capitalism is the overexpansion of speculation into a bubble. And that's, and that's essentially gets started with precisely this marketing uh, apparatus that Greenberg helps create, this nexus of dealer, critic, monograph writer, artist story. And it's easily the most corrupt field in, in academia uh, for just that reason, because there's a vast sums of money involved. Um, and and it's, it, it, there, there's a notion, again, where I see the ultimate tragedy of Greenberg is that he's led us into an area where there needs to be now a totally new direction. There needs to be something totally new. And I don't know really what that is. I mean, for one thing, just because the commercial power is so great. But in a, the, the thing that bothers me is someone in a protected, I don't work in a university, but it, in, the, in terms of the cultural distance that you should have working in a university is too many people are interested in the internal logic of their own argument rather than heading out into what Americans always did. We always lit out for the territories. We always went out into America. We went out into society and came back and reported our findings. Now what we do is that we just go in kind of circles of where we report on what we're reporting on. And that, I think, started with Greenberg. Anyway, thank you all for coming. Sure.